your microphone, turn it on. Okay, excellent, got that. If you have a copy of the Word of God, uh, I'd invite you to open it to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 16 uh, to 29 today. You know, sometimes you open up the Word of God, whether you're doing it maybe together with your family or in a life group or in a Sunday school class or you're doing it in your own personal time of being in the Word of God or you come and you hear a sermon. Sometimes, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit causes like some application of the Word to just jump right out at you. Maybe it comes from a direct command of God and you are convicted or you're encouraged or inspired to obey that command. Sometimes, sometimes it comes out more as an example. You see an example, maybe an example to follow, or maybe oftentimes in Scripture an example not to follow of someone, right? And so we read God's Word, and oftentimes the Holy Spirit causes application to be super clear. Last week in John 5, 1 through 15, I think there was so much that was just crystal clear application for me as I studied and tried to relay to you as we looked at it together. If you weren't here, and about half of you weren't probably, and so uh, I'd invite you, we, we put sermons online so that if you missed one, especially when we're in a series like this, it might be helpful to go back and listen to or watch that online. But in John 5, 1 to 15, we saw Jesus heal a man who had been disabled for 38 years. And there was all sorts of application for us in that. One of the things was this, knowing that not many or any of us that I know of have been given the supernatural gift of healing, we recognize that we do worship the God who heals. And so one practical point of application is we should pray for those who are suffering physically. We talked about how we need to, as Jesus did, he was in Jerusalem for a feast, but he went to the, the spot where this man was laying. He went away from the feast to a spot where people with many disabilities, many people were gathered together seeking healing. And Jesus goes, and out of all of them, chooses one man, a man who had been disabled for 38 years. And he goes to him and he heals him because Jesus can do that. And so we talked about how we ought to care enough about the physical suffering of others that we go to where people are hurting and do whatever it is that we can do. We talked about the reality that we not to be, need to be sorry need to be careful not to be like those Jewish people in the story who were so caught up in everything going kind of according to their neatly well-defined box that when they saw the miraculous work of God right in front of them, they failed to notice it. And instead of celebrating, they scolded this guy for walking with his mat on the Sabbath. I don't want to be like that. And we talked about application as Jesus at the end of that passage. Remember verse 13, Jesus says to the man, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. You think it was bad to be disabled for 38 years, which is bad. I'm telling you that there's a worse problem that you have, and it's your problem of your sin. And something much worse than 38 years of disability can come to you if you do not deal with that problem. And that's what Jesus came to deal with, was the problem of sin. So, tons of application. We talked a lot about this phrase, we as Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So, a lot of application in the passage last week. Now, we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 16, and we're going to follow up with exactly where we left things last week, and that is a conversation that Jesus is now going to have with these Jewish people because they're upset that this guy was walking with his mat on the Sabbath. 
And so they're going to come to Jesus, and they're going to demand some answers, and Jesus is going to give them some answers. And rather than defending himself, as we might think, well, well, here's an opportunity for Jesus to say, well, actually, honor the Sabbath doesn't mean that a man who just got healed can't take up his mat and walk. He doesn't correct them on their misinterpretation of the law. Instead, Jesus is going to very clearly tell them, here's who I am. And it's these passages that maybe application doesn't immediately jump out at us from. Maybe not like some other passages of Scripture, but it is so applicable, the realities that we'll see here, so applicable that we will find because of who Jesus is and because of the authority that the Father has given Him, our response to Jesus is a matter of life and death. That's what we're going to look at today. So life and death hinge on Jesus. If you have the Bible, like I said, open up to John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 16 to 29. And if you're able to, why don't you stand as we read God's Word together today. Let's pray. Father, we just submit ourselves to You. There is some glorious truth in this passage about who You are, about who Your Son is. For those of us who have heard this many times, help it to fall fresh on our minds and hearts that we would not cease to be in awe of who you are. And I pray that by the power of your spirit that those who are in here this morning a bit skeptical, that your spirit would work in such a way that they also stand in awe of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. God's word from John chapter 5 starting in Verse 16, it says this, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will will He show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
Amen. You can be seated. All right, in your bulletin, uh, once again, a spot for you to take notes uh, so that you can follow along in that way if that's helpful. Three points again today. First one is this, Jesus is God. We're going to look pretty quickly at the first couple of points and spend most of our time at the end. But Jesus, like I said, rather than defending himself and pointing out that they're misreading the law when they say that this man can't take up his mat and walk with it on the Sabbath, Jesus kind of instigates a little more hatred toward him by making a claim that would have made these people livid. It would have amounted to blasphemy, and that's what they're upset about. Even more so than they're upset about what Jesus did on the Sabbath, they're upset now about what he's saying about who he is. Because, look at verses 16 and 17, Jesus answers them when they're talking about why are you doing this on the Sabbath. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. We might read that and not meet, read a whole lot into it, but they're realizing as Jesus says this, that what Jesus is doing, Jesus, who they see as a mere man, a rabbi, maybe a teacher, is saying, referring to the, the, the holy God of Israel, Yahweh, as Father. And he's saying, hey, if my father does it, then I'm doing it. And they get upset. And so John tells us this is what's happening. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is doing a bold thing. He's telling the truth. Because it is true that Jesus is God. We have one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have always existed together and will always exist. And Jesus is making it clear to them that he is God, and this is offensive to them. John, now if you're a reader of John, like you're reading John for the first time, this isn't going to be a surprise to you, because way back in the first chapter, when John was introducing Jesus, he let the readers know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, okay? The Word came, came and took on flesh, right? Referring to Jesus as the Word who was indeed God. But here the Jewish people are hearing this, and it's offensive. Maybe a quick point before we move on. Just a quick question for you that we'll spend more time on later. But do you believe that Jesus is God? Because the reality is that many around us do not. Right? This, is, this is a point that maybe for many of you is just like, well, yeah, Jesus is God. We need to recognize many around us do not worship Jesus as God. You could go just down the street uh, to the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses um, where they would be um, using a translation, their own translation of the Bible that tries to take out every reference. I even read the passage from, from this, this passage in there. They, they're not even very good at doing it, uh, but changing words to make it sound like Jesus is not in fact God. Okay? So that's what they would teach, and they're wrong because Jesus is God. That truth that there is only one God and Jesus is God is an offensive truth because it means a lot of people who do not worship Jesus as God are wrong. So you don't have to just look at uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who might live down the street from you or knock on your door or go to school with you. You can look at a number of people living on your block or in your neighborhood who likewise do not believe that Jesus is 
God. They might believe some true things about Jesus, but a lot of people would not confess Jesus as God who is worthy of their worship. A lot of people that live right around us, and maybe you're one of them. Someone sitting in here today might not be all that sure. You know, th- this, this kind of common uh, classic argument I think makes a lot of sense because when Jesus makes a big claim like this, when he makes a claim like the fact that he is God, people have said, well, here's your option. If Jesus claims to be God, he is either a liar, because it, so if he's not actually God, then he's a liar, right? Um, that maybe it is that Jesus knows that he's not God, but he claims to be God. And in that case, what is he? Well, he's, he's lying, right? Uh, another option is that Jesus doesn't actually even know. Jesus actually thinks that he's God, but he's really not. And so the word that's classically used for that, well, well then he's a lunatic. He believes that he's God, but he's really, and he tells people that he is, but he's actually not God. Or the other option is this. That if Jesus is not liar and he's not a lunatic, which we would say he is not, then he is who he says he is. He is Lord. Jesus says that he is God, and that's what he is. We'll wrestle with that a little bit more later. But Jesus is going to make it even more clear. He's not going to kind of back down and start with something big and then kind of back away from it. He's going to say more things that are going to make these people more and more mad as he reveals to them who he is. But as it made some of them mad and it made some people mad that we live around, it is truth that we rejoice in because ultimately it is good news for all people and they need to hear it. So let's go on and learn more about what Jesus says about himself. Jesus does what only God can do. Let's look at verses 19 uh, through 20, well, through 21 about. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Here's what I want us to notice. I want us to notice some components of the relationship between Father and Son. Do you notice submission there? Do you see the way in which the Son submits to the Father? Do you see that there? I see it where Jesus says the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Right? There is this willing submission within the Trinity, all equal, right? all fully God, but there's a willing submission of the Son to the Father. I'm only going to do what the Father does. Right? And I also, and maybe you see it there too, there's unity. The Father and the Son are on the same page they always have been right it's not that one has one plan and one has another plan so jesus says whatever the father does that the son does likewise okay because they're in unity on what it is that needs to be done in this world father and son do the same thing now if we're talking in human terms some of you dads are with me on this (laughs) if the if the son does whatever the father does that's not always good news in human terms right Um, Because I've seen that in my own fatherhood, um, that whatever the father does, the son does, not always good. But when the father is God the father and the son is Jesus, it is good news that the son does whatever he sees the father doing. Right? It's good news. So we see unity and we see love. Do you see that in verse 20? 
For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Again, some of you who have had the privilege of being a father, you know this love that you have that you're not sure totally even where it comes from, but you look at at your son or at your daughter and you love them. That's what we're told. The father loves the son. And part of loving is, I want you to be where I'm at. I want to show you what I'm doing. And that's what the father does for the son. Wants the son to be a part of the work that the father is doing in the world. So the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. What a gift to get a glimpse into this relationship that's existed really for all of eternity. But Jesus is just telling us, here's what it's like for me and the Father. I submit to Him. We're on the same page all the time. He loves me. He shows me what He's doing. We'll go on. And greater works than these will He show them so that you may marvel. He's referring back to, you think it's a big deal that I said words to a man who was disabled for 38 years and now he's walking? I got, I got better stuff coming than that. Right? You're going to marvel when you see the other stuff that's coming. Greater works than these. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He wills. Jesus does what only God can do. Nobody else that can take the dead and give the dead life. Father can do that, and the Son can do it, and He chooses with whom He'll do it. We saw it already in the healing, right, where He comes to the pool of Bethesda, filled with people who are suffering in different ways, but He goes, and He goes to only one of them, and chooses to heal that man, knowing he could have healed all of them, but he, he heals whom he will, right? So we're told that here as well. The Father gives, or the Son gives life to whom he will. Psalm 115 says it this way, Our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Right? And that's good news. No one else can do that. No one else can say that. Only God. And so... Let's spend some time at the end of this passage. I want to spend most of our time here because this is where it gets very applicable because our response to Jesus, based on who he is and what he's doing, our response to Jesus is a matter of life and death. So let's look at verse 22. Verse 22 tells us this. The Father, oh wait, it skipped ahead. Can you go back to verse 22, Amanda? It was a little slow on my little touching thing here. Verse 22 says this, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Okay? So it's one of the things. As the Son submits to the Father, the Father gives things to the Son. And the Father gives to the Son judgment. Your judgment is yours to make. This is why it's so important for us to know who Jesus is, because Jesus is given authority to judge. So that, because there's unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all that honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Okay, so he's trying to make that very clear. You can't say that I honor God, I believe in God, but not sure what I think about Jesus. Because if you don't, don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. Does that make sense? So, 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 so some people who would maybe have a respect for Jesus as some prophet but do not worship him as Lord, they're wrong, right? And they're not honoring the Father. 
you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring the Father. And this would have been very convicting for the Jewish people to whom Jesus is speaking. Because their whole point, the reason they were, remember, they're not, they're not bad people. They're just trying to make sure they're honoring the Sabbath. That's what they wanted to happen. And so they think they're honoring the Father by trying to follow all the rules and getting other people to follow all the rules. They think they're honoring the Father. And Jesus has the guts to tell them, those who want to kill him now, we're told, he has the guts to tell them, listen, if you're not honoring me, you're not honoring the Father. He has the guts to tell them that. They're not going to like that. That's offensive. Let's go on to verse 24. He continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So how is it that we pass from death to life? We've seen this over and over again in John already, and we're going to see it again. So I love the simplicity of John. He just makes it clear. How does one move from death to life? How does one live with the sure hope of eternal life? You hear the word, you believe, and you have eternal life, right? You hear the word, you believe, you have eternal life. We've seen that over and over again already in John, and we're going to see it again. And there's this bit of kind of like already and not yet. This is kind of a theme throughout the New Testament that some of what we have in Christ is given to us now and some is yet to be in the future. So we see that in this next verse. Jesus says an hour is coming. So it's coming in the future and it's now here in the present when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So there is a a way in which we have eternal life now, but we're looking forward to eternal life in the future. There's a way in which we have been spiritually dead and raised to life in Christ now, but we're looking forward to a future resurrection, right? So, So there's both of those things going on here, and it's all hinging on Jesus, whether or not you hear his voice. Continue on to verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Isn't this a beautiful picture? As Jesus tells the people, listen, the Father has life in himself. Nobody needed to create the Father. The Father's not dependent on anybody or anything else for life. And me, the Son, I'm not either. I have life in myself. You can't say that about yourself, right? So like tomorrow I get to celebrate my birthday. I'm not celebrating the fact that I have life in myself. Like I just willed myself into existence. Right? I can't do that. Uh, the, the corn that's growing in the fields, there needed to be a seed that was planted in order for that life to sprout out. Right? The only one who can say, I have life in myself, is God. And Jesus, again, is saying that here. Verse 27, and he has given authority, given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So based on who Jesus is, the Father has given him authority. We saw it in verse 22. We see it again here. Jesus has authority given to him by the Father to be the judge. It's based on who he is, the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at these last two verses, verses 28 and 29. Life and death hinge on your response to Jesus, and not just yours. Because some of you, I don't want you to like get this impression like, well, good, well, I've responded to Jesus in faith. There's a whole lot of people who haven't. So here's what 
Jesus says in 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the day is coming when all will be judged. And there's going to be a separation, and there's not three different options or seven or eight different options. There's two different options. Some will go to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of judgment. Now, you might say, well, hold up. What about all that stuff about hearing, believing, and then receiving life? What's this? It looks like works, doesn't it? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And you say, like, well, if we're honest, all of us have done some good and done some evil. Right? We're told also in Scripture that all that does not proceed from faith is sin. And we're also told that, that those who have a genuine faith in Jesus, it will be displayed in their works. There will be fruit in their life. And so, while salvation is dependent on God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there is a sense in this passage and other passages in Scripture in which there will be some degree of judgment based on works that's coming yet in the future as well. Still holding on to the reality that our salvation comes only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? So I want to spend a little bit of time uh, on application of this passage. So first application for believers, it would simply be this, just to be reminded and to rejoice in the reality that somebody shared with you the good news of Jesus, and then to recognize that knowing that life and death hinge on people's response to Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, are we going to be content with people thinking that we're nice people with nice families? See, this is a struggle for me. This is something I've been praying about for me. Like, I think part of the, the outworking of the good news in my life is that I live life in a different way from the rest of the world. Hopefully that's true about all of us who are in Christ. We don't live life the same, but, but sometimes I can be content with being there. So people are like, hey, I like the way that you love and care for and serve other people, and I like the way work is going for your family, life is going for your family. But I don't want me or us to be content with just being like, hey, other people's understanding or, or thoughts, our reputation as Christians, we got a, kind of a, they, they like us. They, they think we're all right. Well, that's fine, but our goal here on this earth is not to change people's opinions of Christians. Our goal is that people would know and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so... May we be people who ask God to give us courage to talk to people clearly about Jesus, letting them know that their life depends on their response. That's what we need to be praying about. But I want to address for a moment those who are skeptical unbelievers. Maybe, maybe you've been in church for a long time, but you've heard a lot of this stuff. You're just not totally convinced. You're at a spot where you're like, I'm not sure that like, this Jesus is the one I want to give my life to. I'm not sure that I want to surrender myself to him and, and be a disciple of Jesus and have that be my primary identity in life. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about these claims that Jesus makes about who he is. And so this reality, you wrestle with this because think, think about the world that we live in. Generally, people like to be their own God, 
They like to determine what's right and what's wrong. They like to determine who's right and who's wrong. Like everybody just kind of wants to do whatever they want to do. We like to be our own God. And you know what one of the worst things you can do in our culture today is? Judge someone else, right? So, so that, that, that's like our culture, everybody likes to be their own God, and nobody ever wants to be judged. But then Jesus comes along, and he tells them there's only one God, and that's me. And he tells him, I've been given authority to the Father by the Father to judge. So I'm the only God, and I'm going to be judged. That's offensive to people in the culture that we live in today. And so if you're one of the people that hears that, you're like, wow, I'm not sure if I can go with that because I've been taught other stuff. And this just seems pretty harsh for Jesus to say, there's only one God, and that's me, and I'm going to be the judge. Your eternity depends on your response to me. I'd ask you a couple of questions. First of all, this, or if you have a skeptical friend, you could ask them these questions. Three of them. One, do you believe that everyone lives as something of a servant to a person or system or idea higher than themselves? That there's something, some kind of something above a person to, to which they kind of submit themselves to. Some idea, some system, some person that, that really drives how they make decisions in life. You could ask them if that's true. Then you could ask this question. Who or what would be a better God than the God of the Bible? Like if everybody's going to kind of fall under some sort of system and worship something of some sort, can you think of a better God than the God of the Bible? Anybody come up with one yet? What would that God look like? Can you come up with a, a better God than the God of the Bible? Would that be you? Would you make a better God than the God of the Bible? You could ask someone. Or maybe, maybe it's some elected official that could make a better God, uh, or maybe not an elected official. Maybe it's better if we just lived in a world where there is no God. There's, there's no authority anywhere. Everything's just flat, right? And we don't have authority. Anarchy, it's called. Maybe that would be better. You could ask skeptical people that question. Who would be a better God than the God of the Bible? And tell me why. You could ask them this question, a third one. Who or what would be a better judge than the God of the Bible? Who do you want to have ultimate, ultimate authority to make a judgment to call something either right or wrong. Do you want that to be like determined by popular opinion? Do you want the media to be in charge of it? Like, who do you want to be in charge of that? Is that like something Congress ought to do, Supreme Court? Who gets to decide? Who's the ultimate judge? Do you have a better judge than the God of the Bible, right? So you can ask people who are skeptical, and I would ask you, if you're skeptical, questions like that. Jesus is God. And he's been given authority to judge. And life and death hinge on your response to Jesus. And here's what I love about the authority of Jesus. It's a real authority, and all will one day see how very real it is. Because when we talk about authority, we usually try and kind of like relate it to something we know in our lives. So let me tell you a couple of quick stories. Um, there have been times in my life where I've been given positions of authority. But I didn't have a lot to back it up. Okay, so let me tell you about one. Um, I was, uh, one of my jobs, what, I had lots of different jobs when I was in college, and one of my jobs was to work uh, the last shift of the night in the student center. And at the end of that shift, 
my job was to kind of like be security, like they didn't have security on campus. And so like I had to go through the whole athletic facility and the student center and make sure that everything was, all the lights were off. There was no like community members or sneaky college students hanging out in dark places, waiting till it was locked up for the night so that they could just hang out there all night. So, so I had authority if anybody was still in these places to tell them, hey, I work at the Round Horse Student Center, and you got to go. Uh, so I had authority to do that, but I got to tell you the truth. I was scared to walk in all these dark places and lock doors and that kind of stuff. And you know what they armed me with? A key, a flashlight, and the only guns I had were the ones like right here, which is not much, right? Uh, and so I didn't feel like I had a position of authority, but there was nothing to back it up. Another time this happened to me is, uh, so I went to, um, during college, I, I was going for education, and so I got my 7th through 12th grade teaching license um, for the state of Iowa. And, but during the process of student teaching, God made it clear to me that I was called to pastoral ministry. But, I mean, I had already gone through all this, so I got my license, and we had like two or three weeks before we were going to move so I could start seminary. And I was like, well, if I did all this work for four years to get my teaching license, i got to use it a couple times. So I got to be a substitute teacher in a couple of high schools. Um, so I'm 21 years old, and I look like everybody's younger brother, uh, and I'm supposed to be their teacher, and it's the end of the school year. Do you think I got a lot of respect uh, from the students? No, Right? And so I had this position of authority, this is your claim, but there was not much to back it up. And I tell you those stories to, to remind you of this, that when we look at human authority, sometimes our authority seems almost laughable. But when Jesus says, the Father has given me authority to judge, let me remind you of what that looks like. John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, would later receive, later in his life, would receive a vision from Jesus about what things will look like in a day to come. And I want you to hear this. I want you to hear what he has to say about the authority of Jesus from Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read a section and then from chapter 20. First from Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11. John sees this vision of Jesus. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus has been given authority by God the Father to judge, and he will do it. And Revelation chapter 20 says it this way, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I read that to remind us that when God the Father gives authority to Jesus the Son to judge, to remind us of the reality that he has the power to back that up. And we have the assurance from the word of God that he will one day do it. That Jesus is the judge. And so I recognize that perhaps something for some of you, some of some of the work of the Holy Spirit is going on in your heart. That, that there's something that you're convicted of. That you're realizing that something, someone you've taken lightly. You've, you've formed a relationship with them, but you've never made it clear to them that their response to Jesus is a matter of life and death. That maybe that's a step you need to take this week. For some of you, the step you need to take this week is just a step in which you submit to Him. You say, I understand that I'm a sinner and that what I deserve is not your reward, but I deserve your punishment. If it comes to me standing before the throne and the only record I have is my own record of my own deeds, then I know that I deserve to be punished eternally. But you can, by faith in Jesus, be clothed with righteous robes that you might stand before the throne, as we just sang earlier, and when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. That our plea before Him is not, look at all that I did, but our plea is Christ and Christ alone. Look at what He has done. Have you responded to Jesus in faith? Do you trust in Jesus as Savior and submit to Him as Lord? And if not, I would encourage you to do that today. As we await and realize there is coming a day in which Jesus the Judge will come. Let's pray. Father, help us to feel more often the weight of those realities. It's so easy to just coast through life. We got we got jobs to do, we got games to go to. We got home projects that need to be done. We have kids that need to be fed. We've got stuff in our calendars. And we coast through life with almost this expectation that it's just going to keep going on like this forever. God, forgive us for forgetting the reality, the big realities that we see, the good news that we see here. That Jesus is God and He's been given authority to judge and one day He will return. So God, help us to be people who are ready for that return. That when we face the day of judgment, We will not come before Him with our own 
works, but that we will be among those whose names are written in the book of life because our trust has been in Jesus and the work that he's done in our place on our behalf. Thank you for your great power, your great love and mercy and justice. Help us to be reminded of that even as we sing a closing song together. In Jesus' name, amen.